Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk about journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and this show is produced by the inestimable Nina Coppell, a picture of health and vitality, keeping the show on the level. Trust me. Coming up, the ABC loses $84 million in this year's budget, the Australian law that could criminalise journalism, and the study advice in a college paper that sparked outrage. All that and more. Joining me in the studio tonight is Andrew Fowler, ex-ABC investigative journalist and author of the most excellent Shooting the Messenger, Criminalising Journalism. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Peter. Katrina Strickland, the editor of Good Weekend and a woman of many, many talents. Hello, Katrina. Hi, Peter. And on the line from Canberra is Kyla Lusikian, national political reporter at the wonderful Daily Telegraph. Hi, Kyla. Hi, Peter. Amidst talk of tax reform and perks for pensioners, last night's budget brought some bad news for the national public broadcaster. The government will freeze indexation of the ABC from July 2019, which will cost the broadcaster $84 million over three years. This comes at a challenging time for the ABC, which is already facing cumulative cuts worth $254 million that have been imposed since 2014. For a bit of background, I caught up for a coffee with Professor Ed Davis, president of the New South Wales chapter of the Friends of the ABC. To begin with, I asked him whether he was surprised by the cuts. I'm not sure that I was very surprised, but I was disappointed, appalled and, and angry with the cut. Is it too early to fully understand, or do you have a, early understandings of what the cuts will mean? The ABC has had its funding cut now for 30 years. So it's at something like a third of its real levels 30 years ago. It looks as if it's held together by bits of, of elastoplast. I guess Ed would say that, but nonetheless, what are we seeing here? More evidence that the coalition government doesn't like the ABC and wants to keep the broadcaster on an ever-tightening leash? Or is the ABC being told to tighten its belts and be more careful with taxpayers' money? What do you think, Kyla? Well, I I think um, the good professor needs to go up to the ABC's Canberra Bureau because it doesn't seem to be at all held together by a sticky tape. There are more journalists there than probably in the entire News Corp and Fairfax offices combined. So... It, it, I saw the news yesterday, of course, in the budget, and then we had you know all of these people come out and say it was you know the end of the world almost. One of the MEAA, or I think actually sorry, I think it was one of the union groups, uh, basically said, well, you know, if if we keep going under this government, the ABC will no longer exist, which is just you know with what evidence? Absolutely none. Um, you know, there's it, it appears to be some you know some tightening of the belt over the same course, you know, the same period of time, the ABC is going to get some three or so billion dollars uh, in in public money. And that's fine. You know, I think, you know, I absolutely support, you know, making sure that the ABC is well resourced. But, you know, carving off, uh, you know, $80 million or so, I don't think is that big a deal. You know, there was, I think there was another journalist I saw on the internet call it financial terrorism. I mean, who are these people? So you don't go subscribe to the idea that the coalition government has it in for the ABC? Well, if they've got it in for the ABC, they're not doing a particularly good job of, 
you know, going after them. Okay, fair so they, point. They, they've cut a small amount of money from the ABC budget, which is enormous already. They're perfectly well-resourced. Uh, and, you know, if you can't properly man a newsroom on $3 billion, then what hope do the rest of the media outlets have? Well, that's an interesting point of view. I'm going to throw to Andrew a minute, but I just already there is talk that news gathering resources and suburban news bureaus in Geelong, Ipswich, Gosford, Parramatta, maybe the ABC investigations team, the special, specialist reporting team, and the RMIT ABC fact check unit, will all of those things be hit? Andrew, I'm assuming you wouldn't, as an ex-ABC person, you wouldn't necessarily agree with Kyla's point of view. Well, I actually don't. I mean, I think the math's a little difficult too, because uh, when you say, you say three billion, that's fine for three years, but it's one billion a year and going south fast. And as the for, comp- for the cuts are for three years, yeah. so people are throwing well, around right. this eighty million dollar figure. Like next year, they're going to lose eighty million dollars, which is just well, not true. So, well, I'm not throwing, You I'm, want to put it into context? I'm not three billion dollars is good. the right number. Well, I'm not, right. I'm not. I'm not talking about three years. I'm talking about one year. So, let's talk about take, one year. Let's take, let's take one year at a time. But anyway, I mean, I think comparing the ABC and its national coverage to the Daily Telegraph and the way that um, the Daily Telegraph operates is um, is a rather sort of spurious comparison. Because if you look at what the ABC does, it covers podcasts, it does television, it does radio, it covers country towns, it covers major metropolitan areas. And so consequently, yes, there are a lot of journalists working there, but a lot fewer now as the years go by. But what about this idea that the ABC, you know, it's funded by the taxpayers and, you know, we live in straightened times, we all know that, and the government is trying to reduce the size of government overall. Why shouldn't it share some of its burden, Andrew? I think it has shared some of its burden over the years now. I mean, the figures quoted before by the friends of the ABC show the, the slide in the amount of money coming into the ABC. And I worked there for again, about 20 years. And I'll tell you what, um, you work very, very hard at the ABC. You probably, and I also worked at News Limited. I know how hard you work there as well. What I really find quite uh, disturbing is journalists attacking other journalists. I find that a particularly a problem when we're all in this together trying to bring out the truth and trying to bring out and expose things for the best interest of the Australian public. So to have News Corporation attacking the ABC the way it does, day in, day out, day in, day out, I find that to be uh, a little disconcerting. Okay, that's an interesting point of view. I mean, I'm going to go to the uh, the umpire then, maybe, <laughs> Katrina, with the Fairfax hat on, oh, maybe. Goodness. So um, we all uh, use the ABC. It's a, yeah. it's a national institution. I would hazard to say that the country would be poorer without it. But do you, putting these cuts into context, do you think these are a problem? Is this a sort of thin end of the wedge? Is it evidence that the likes of Mitch Fifield and possibly other people like, for instance, Peter Dutton, really have it in for the ABC? Well, I think it, it's almost normalised that the ABC gets cut in a budget, isn't it? Like, So in some respects, it's it would be more surprising if they got an increase. That's what you would be, or, or, or not a cut. Um, I haven't worked at the ABC, so I don't know actually how much fat there is to cut or not. But, you know, I, I don't think it's good when cultural institutions like the ABC get cut. And I find it, I do think there's an ideological component. I mean, the Liberal government has, you know, long been talking about how, it, it, you know, it doesn't like the ABC aspects of it and thinks it's left-leaning and things. So I don't think you can say it's just about mm. belt tightening, given how often it happens. And so, given... Kyla, on that point, you're a keen observer of Canberra. Obviously, you live there, you eat and breathe it. Is this ideological, you think, just to get closer to that idea? In terms of the, the funding cut, I mean, I, look, there's obviously an ideological difference between, well, disagreeance, I guess, 
uh, between what some of the some of the senior you know government um, ministers think of the ABC's coverage. You know, I, I really that, I mean, that's well, pretty well, clear. Okay. That's, they make those, they make those comments, but um, that's for them. I mean, I, I just the point I was trying to make, and at no point did I ever compare the ABC to the Daily Telegraph. Um, but the point I was trying to make is that when people, I mean, I, there was, I think there is a disproportionate level of outrage at what is, you know, a, a cut, unfortunate, sure, enormous, probably not, um, you know, when this happens. Like, everyone thinks it's the end of the world, that, that somehow the ABC is going to end, or there's, you know, fi- financial terrorism or some garbage like that, when so, well, really there's a lot more stuff in the budget you could be outraged about if you wanted. Yeah, sure. I mean, I agree with the, I mean, the over egging of stories and, you know, the end of the world is nigh and the rest of it. I think the problem is it's just the never-ending clobbering the ABC gets from your organisation and also from the government. And you seem to be in lockstep on this. I mean, to just say, for example, you think that public broadcasting has a place in the cultural world of Australia would be a good thing for the Australian, particularly the Australian, maybe in the Telegraph as well, to come out and say and to defend the right of journalists to be employed by a public broadcaster not to totally denigrate them. And that's the real problem, rather than the cash. I mean, believe me, there isn't that much there. And I did work there on pretty sort of reasonable wages, but uh, nowhere near as high as the ones that are paid by News Corp. So I think that you've got to bear that in mind as well. When you, you know, as fellow journalists, we deal with this issue. We're all in this together. And, you know, with, with an editorial line of a newspaper, I think journalists should try and stand apart from that. Well, can I throw something at you just before we move on to another scintillating subject and that is uh, the under Michelle Guthrie the she had a very different tone and has tried to deal with the government in a very different way Andrew and and one of the things that most recently caught our eye of course was the handing back of the cabinet fi- cabinet files the big leak I mean do you think this is shows that Michelle Guthrie's sort of way of handling government relations needs to change I think for the government, it's a perfect way for the ABC to handle a cache of cabinet documents which would give the Australian public a view of how cabinet actually operates. Um, Going to the central question about about Michelle Guthrie, I think she's way out of a league, way out of a depth. She has no understanding of the way that uh, leading a public broadcaster should be carried out. And I think this uh, lack of editorial leadership, and she is the editor-in-chief, is actually... Uh, a major problem for the ABC. I think. I think going down the line, there are, there are other problems as well in senior management where they don't take journalistic leads. Can you imagine the Daily Telegraph or the Australian having a trove of cabinet documents and not producing hundreds of stories about them? I can't imagine that ever happening. So, do you see that as a failure of journalism? Then, I see it as a failure of journalism. Sure. Uh, do you feel that that's a failure that starts with the editor in chief? Well, you're asking me a leading question, but I must say, (laughs) you put it so well. I think it does start with the the head of the ABC, sure. I mean, I think that's the position. It was a position. I think Brian Johns became the editor-in-chief, and uh, with all the attendant problems you have with that um, flowing through the organisation, she is the editor-in-chief, yeah, and it's a big problem. If she's calling the editorial shots, they are really missing the target. So finally, Katrina, who would want to be an editor-in-chief of the ABC? Is this a job you'd ever aspire to? No, because you're always going to be attacked and you, yeah, I think you're always going to have the government attacking you. You're going to have everyone saying, you know, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong. No, I wouldn't want that job. Okay. Well, you're listening to Fourth Estate. 
You're with me, Peter Frey, and I'm speaking with Andrew Fowler, investigative journalist and author of Shooting the Messenger, Criminalising Journalism, Katrina Strickland, the editor of Good Weekend, and on the line from Canberra, Carla Sikin, who, apart from working for the Daily Telegraph, was the initial presenter of this very show. If you want to hear more of my chat with Professor Ed Davis, check out our podcast. It's there for you to take a listen to whenever you like. The Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, the MEAA, has released this year's report into the state of press freedom in Australia. The Journalists' Union is particularly concerned about draft laws on national security and interference. The MEAA is calling these bills an appalling new assault on press freedom and says that if introduced, they could see journalists locked up for 20 years just for doing their job. Andrew. Your book is looking at this very issue, the criminalization of journalism. Are these very dark days in terms of press freedom? They are indeed um, very dark days in terms of press freedom in Australia, particularly if you're looking at what really matters in the heart of government, which are decisions about war and peace and our strategic interface with other countries. They, are, um, they make it very difficult for a journalist to carry out the function of revealing what governments are really doing as opposed to sometimes the outright lies they tell the population. And what this new raft of laws does is to make it uh, a criminal offence if these laws are passed to even have carriage or no information which the government has determined is not in the best interests for it to be revealed. So this is the very antithesis of what the of what the of media should be doing, right? Sure. I mean, I mean this is why we're here, in, in large part, to well, keep them honest and report fairly and freely. Well, that's right. I mean, and that's why, of course, they have an army of people, army of public relations people, in an attempt to persuade us that um, uh, they're telling the truth. And uh, so what we ask is, of course, the transparency and um, information to be revealed to us. And, uh, of course, that's virtually impossible, particularly with the government we have in Australia at the moment, so one of the most this is one of the most repressive places to be as a journalist. There is no real defence for revealing the truth in this country. And if these laws go through, it will be even worse if it's possible to be. Since 9-11, 54 separate pieces of anti-terrorism and surveillance legislation have passed through this parliament more than any other member of the Western Alliance. So the real squeeze is on not to actually protect us from terrorism, but to protect the government from exposure. So this is a remarkable state of affairs. And before I return to that MEAA uh, survey, I'd like to ask Katrina and Carla to reflect on this because it seems to me that we have a kind of high level of tolerance to what we're talking about here, that we, journalism as a profession maybe, but also citizens broadly, seem to be accepting this. So how would you rate, do you think, Katrina, our press freedom on a scale of scale of one to ten, with ten being you know very bad mm. and one being okay. What I would say, perhaps not to answer that question, but to say okay, something different to that, is that um, it's interesting that most journalists, in what they're doing, this doesn't affect them because they're covering all sorts of areas, and it's more the PR kind of overrun that's the real problem. But it's the ones who are working in this area that are doing the really great investigative work that that is uncovering the things that are very important and they're the ones that you want to protect. So I can see why journalists, perhaps most working journalists, aren't really perhaps even across the detail of these laws because they don't apply to their own work, but they apply to the pointy end, mm. which really matters more than what most of us but do. Can I suggest to you that maybe it's time we all got a bit Yeah, I think that's right. 
I think we're not that engaged. Most people in journalism these days are so overworked that they're paying attention to what they need to pay attention to in their little area and perhaps not. I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I think, you know, we're not all as across these er these things because mm. they apply to a very certain small group of journalists who are doing, you know, perhaps the most important work of any of us. I think I can anticipate a future cover story of the Good Weekend about this. What do you perhaps, think? Perhaps. Perhaps Andrew could... Oh, look, we're doing business <laughs> on air. Okay. Special, <laughs> Kyla, special rates. Okay, special rates for rates. <laughs> Kyla, you're close to that pointy end. Do you feel that your freedoms are impinged? And what do you think about these new laws? I'm not sure how close to the pointy end I really am um, at all. But the, the new laws, I mean, the government has watered them down after we took a swipe at them. On, I think on the front page of the uh, Telegraph, we had a photo of, of Turnbull kind of almost as a communist or something like that, a Stalinist. Um, but and it has been watered down. I, I, you know, I think they're somewhat unfortunate that they might, you know, get get journalists. Um, I don't think that's the intention of them. I think it's a particularly incredible and stupid thing to say that Australia is somehow one of the most repressive places, you know, in the world for, for journalism. I mean, that, that is just a staggering... Okay, well, I'm going to ask Andrew to back that up. Andrew, we'll write yeah, a reply well, for you. Well, yeah. look, I mean, the thing is, I mean, I think the word stupid is a rather um, clumsy word to use. I'm sure you didn't mean to say that. Um, but I think the problem you have in Australia is we're not protected by as they are in the, in the United States, by the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of publication. And in the European Union, and in the UK is part of that as well at the moment, journalists are protected. Their sources are protected by the European Human Rights Act. And so there's a protection there, which we don't have, because we still operate under the old um, UK law, uh, which basically gives no protection at all, no protection for journalists to protect their sources, and no protection from uh, from being um, possibly jailed for revealing information that's not that the government thinks is not in the public interest, so that's why I say it's quite repressive, and it is quite a repressive. Um, How many journalists have been have been jailed recently? Well, this isn't the point I'm making. The point I'm making is simply that the stories cannot be told because people are t very often too careful, too terrified, too rightly concerned that if they do. Uh, step too close to the Crimes Act, they will end up in jail. So, so perhaps to Andrew's point, Carla, I'll just go back to that MEAA survey, which found that 72% of the public rated the health of the press freedom in Australia as poor or very poor, uh, compared with only 60% of journalists said the same, even though 90% of them thought the press freedom had worsened in the past decade. So are we, so in a way, trying to be overly optimistic? And are we perhaps comparing ourselves when we talk about press freedom with overtly repressive regimes, whereas I think what Andrew is talking about in the book is something a little bit more nuanced and subtle than that. What do you think about that, Carla? Well, I mean, if it was put in that way, then that, I think that's probably more correct. Um, but, you know, there are, I think there are many things that get in the way of you know, proper functioning of, of the press in terms of getting stories um, more so than kind of, you know, this idea that the, the government is coming for us and you know, wants to make sure that we can't hold them to account. I mean, you know, in that way, I think, for instance, defamation laws are just mm. well, completely out of whack. Or in, uh, the, on another thing, you know, FOI laws are basically laughable. Um, you know, there is no real actual freedom of information. They could they block them on the most spurious um, reasons whatsoever. I mean, there are there are actually practical, you know, well, it is, um, but it's also things true like that, that which get in yep. the way. 
absolutely rather than this like idea that they you know that, that they the government just want to lock us up if we've got a story to tell that they don't like but it is true uh and andrew can talk about this better than i suspect but it is true that for instance uh your phone could be being tapped right now and you wouldn't even know about it under these new laws is that right andrew yeah that's right i mean under uh, asio could um have what they call a journalist warrant, mm. um, the right to uh, to intercept phone calls. And in fact, the uh, d- director of ASIO was questioned about yeah. this in Parliament and uh, yeah. declined to actually say uh, how many journalist warrants there were out at the moment. So these are warrants to actually tap the phones of journalists. And um, you know, in the United States, you can't do that. And in the UK, um, it's with great difficulty that you do it. Here, it seems to be the AG signs, Attorney General signs off on it and ASIO can do it. That's the danger. I mean, this is the problem. It's like it's not um, how do how do you prove that you're in that much danger until it actually happens? I think we've just seen such an such an increase in the number of laws passed, and such a against a backdrop that you quite rightly point out the FOI um, system is broken, um, not just in this country but also to a certain extent in the United States and also in the UK, and also the defamation laws here are absolutely appalling, as you know, um, in the United States. Because of the First Amendment, Trump is talking of introducing or hardening up some of the state's defamation laws. So the screws are really coming on. I mean, when Trump says that the media is the enemy of the American people, and Peter Dutton talks about um, being dead for Fairfax and the ABC, I mean, these are... These are really interesting words to look at when you look at what's happening in the world of journalism that we inhabit. Mm. Okay, so we haven't seen Malcolm Turnbull or uh, Bill Shorten say that uh, we're the uh, we are the enemy of the state. But I do want to finish Katrina on a another and perhaps broader point, which is uh, Maurice Schwartz uh, gave the Brian Johns the fourth annual Brian Johns lecture this week, and his subject was slow news thinking in public. Among the many things he said, it was an excellent speech, among the many things he said was, I quote, we seem to be sliding into illiberalism without panic. The government should protect democracy as much as the media does. Do you agree with that statement? So what does he mean by that? Well, I, I think he... I, I didn't th- hear the whole speech, so right. what's his point? His point is that the media uh, generally uh, seeks to speak up about press freedom and make a point of this, whereas really, if you think about a functioning democracy, it should be one of the primary functions of the government of the day, no matter what colour, to to support you know, pluralism, media diversity and transparency and accountability. So we're speaking up ourselves rather than the government speaking up for And I think it goes us. to this other point, which is that Australia has a high tolerance maybe of illiberalism and we, we may be sliding into this kind of slightly illiberal sort of state where without we don't really know it. I think that's true, but I think that's a global thing. I mean, the whole Cambridge Analytica thing shows that, doesn't it? Like, there's a lot of ways in which we just are kind of fine with things happening that actually, when it's pointed out to us, we're not really fine with it at all. But until, it, I think it goes back to that point I made before, until it impacts us directly, we seem to be kind of um, not turning our minds to it. Um, and I think, yeah, that is that is a, a problem. But as Andrew said, it's it's... You need to know what the outcome of the problem is to then be upset about it. Mm. And if people aren't really... I think that goes to a final point maybe, and stay with you, Katrina, is what should we be doing that we're not doing? Because if we are sliding into this sort of liberal state and we are displaying a high level of tolerance, maybe we have to stop the rot. Maybe we get a bit more vocal. For a start, we obviously have to buy Andrew Fowler's book, but apart from that... But you need to know, don't you? You need to know, you need to have it 
pointed out to you. Like lots, I'm just okay. just going back to Cambridge Analytica. Mm. You know, like everyone who did all those surveys on Facebook and things, everyone kind of knew they were giving away data, but until all of that came out, no one really knew the extent of it. And then, of course, when when everyone realised, they were appalled. But we kind of knew and decided we didn't care in a way, didn't mm. we? Or maybe we care now. But yeah, that's right. But so I think it's about it being really brought home by an example mm. in a way that then, you know, I mean, same with the whole Me Too, you know, like we've all known that all that's been going on for a long time. It, but when there's specific cases that are highlighted mm. and, and brought to the fore, then everyone decides it's... Mm terrible but it was always terrible and we always kind of knew it was going on yes. and that there were sleazy guys around very good point very good point uh, you're listening to fourth estate you're with me peter Frey, and i'm speaking with kylo sekian uh from national political reporter at the daily telegraph from canberra katrina strickland the editor of good weekend and andrew fowler the author of shooting the messenger criminalizing journalism a student journalist in Texas has sparked controversy with a sex column that ventured into the realm of academic advice. The message of the story, which was headlined, finals aren't the only thing going down, explored the way sex could be used as a stress reliever during challenging assessment periods. The cartoons included in the article offered a visual aid to students who wish to attempt some relaxation strategies of their own. But these images seem to have rubbed certain individuals in the university up the wrong way. Kyla, you have had some extensive experience as an editor of student media. Would you publish something like this in a campaign in a, in a campus publication? Yeah, why not? Well, why not indeed? Was there something particularly offensive about it? I, I mean, I remember I think we published um, a, a 100-step guide on how to turn a student newspaper into an origami penis. So I missed that know. edition. That would have been something else. Yeah. Have you still got a copy of that? Can you send me a copy? Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, I think we should republish that. But the, just to uh, help us understand what uh, caused all the outrage, the uh, illustrations that went with the with the column included uh, various boy on boy, girl on girl kind of uh, Karma Sutra like positions. Which um, look, it may be that's uh, only in the United States, but I do detect Katrina a slight air of this puritanical nature creeping into this fair land. What do you think about that? Is sex getting yeah, tougher I mean, to talk about? Just on this one, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. If you can't do that kind of stuff in student newspaper, where where on earth can you do it? So, um, but yeah, I think the Shongsam um, dress incident in the US recently was a bit similar where the girl bought, bought it for a prom and then social media went berserk on how she was appropriating you know, someone else's culture. I think it's it's kind of a social media problem, isn't it? That people can complain. They always have been able to complain or dislike something, but now they kind of get validity because they can do it publicly and then everyone turns it into a big issue. But it's it's a complete non-issue. And, yeah, I think there is a puritanism. Puritani- uh, that word. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, Creeping in everywhere. So, Andrew, well, it, this could be interpreted as a way of the student editor just, um, you know, making a name for himself. What do you think about that? It's a smart strategy. Absolutely nothing beats being banned. Mm. If you can be banned and then be published, you've got it made. And that's what he's done. He's made a name for himself. He's been read around the world. He's been read here. Um, circulation must be up. Um, 
going to the central question about about sex and uh, student politics, well, we've just heard, I mean, student politics and sex kind of go together, almost inseparable. Um, I would have thought he'd be pretty happy with the outcome. He's actually got his, he's got his name up there, he's got his magazine, he's won the argument. I mean, if you go back to the 19, to 1970, School Kids Oz in the UK, there was an obscenity trial involving Richard Neville, a Australian, famous Australian, and um, Geoffrey Robertson was number two in the barrister's list, and he was up there, and they fought this thing out, and they actually they lost the case, um, but eventually I think they won on appeal, whatever it was. But it was a huge argument, much the same about this, like this, where you had... Um, uh, apparently they called it a school kids Oz issue where they had naked women so mm. it was like school kids and naked women that was a no-no so we've come a long way but apparently not in Texas not in Texas and finally what happened to your penis origami thing Kyla did that get you banned Absolutely. No, it didn't actually. Um, I don't think anyone read it, to be perfectly honest. All right. So uh, there wasn't we had to step up our game. It wasn't the start of your brilliant career then? No, unfortunately not. I, I can't. Re- I was trying to recall actually the other... I mean, we were kind of taken off the shelves for a few things, but I think they were mainly because we wrote nasty stories about the student union and the student union yanked our magazines off, but I can't think... I don't think there was anything smutty, unfortunately. All right. Just a, just a, a cursory question. Did you ever write nasty things about the ABC? Uh, no, I don't think so. Not, right. not at university, anyway. No, no, that's right. That <laughs> came later in life. <laughs> uh, thank you all. Um, you've all been listening to The Fourth Estate with me, Peter Frey. Um, I'd like to thank our guest this evening, Andrew Fowler, the author of Shooting the Messenger, Criminalising Journalism. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Katrina Strickland, the editor of Good Weekend. Thanks, Peter. And Kyla Lusikian, who's broken from the busy life of a Canberra reporter. He's from the Daily Telegraph and he's also the original presenter of this fine show. Thank you, Kyla. Anytime. Thank you all for being on the show and I'd like to uh, put out a special mention to my producer, Nina Coppell. And until next time, thanks for listening. (laughs) 